We are continuing in Revelation this morning. <clears throat> and just to fill you in on where we're at, because Revelation is a, it's a, it's a drama of types with, with scenes unfolding, that John is witnessing all of this, and he's trying to tell us this is what's being revealed. And so we are the post-apocalyptic church, which means we are the church on this side of the truths from heaven being revealed. The one who's sitting on the throne had in his right hand a scroll. That means, again, this is the imagery of the, of the royal court, of a king. And he has a decree. But that decree has seven official seals on it. That means that the one who can open and enact that will <clears throat> has to have the authority to break all seven of those seals. And they finally find the one who can do that, the lamb that was slain. So we pick up there with the Lamb opening up God's will, putting that decree into motion. And this is what John sees. This is what we hear. I watched while the Lamb ripped off the first of the seven seals, and I heard one of the cherubim, one of the four living creatures, roar, Come out! And I looked, and I saw a white horse. Its rider carried a bow and was given a victory garland, and he rode off victorious, conquering right and left. And when the lamb ripped off the second seal, I heard the second being cry, Come out! And another horse appeared, this one red. Its rider was off to take peace away from the earth, setting people at each other's throats, killing one another. He was given a huge sword. When he ripped off the third seal, I heard the third being cry, Come out! And I looked. And a black horse, this time, its rider carried a set of scales in his hand. And I heard a message, and it seemed to issue from the four cherubim, from the four living creatures. This message, a quart of wheat for a day's wages, or three quarts of barley, but all the oil and wine you want. And when he ripped off the fourth seal, I heard the fourth being cry, Come out! And I looked, and a colorless horse, sickly pale, its rider was death, and hell, hell was close on its heels. And they were given power to destroy a fourth of the earth by war, famine, disease, and wild beasts. When he ripped off the fifth seal, I saw the souls of those killed because they had held firm in their witness to the word of God. And they were gathered under the altar and they cried out in loud prayers. How long, strong God, holy and true. How long before you step in and avenge our murders? Then each martyr was given a white robe, told to sit back and wait until the full number of martyrs was filled from among their servant companions and friends in the faith. And I watched while he ripped off the sixth seal, a bone-jarring earthquake, sun turned black as ink, moon all bloody, stars falling out of the skies like figs shaken from a tree in a high wind, sky snapped shut like a book, islands and mountains sliding this way and that. And then pandemonium, everyone and his dog running for cover, kings, princes, generals, rich and strong, along with every commoner, slave or free. 
They hid in the mountain caves. They hid in the rocky dens, calling out to mountains and the rocks, Refuge! Hide us from the one seated on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. The great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand against it? You may be waiting for a seventh seal, but let's hold off on that, because that's exactly what John does. These six come out at us very quickly, and the first four are quite memorable, and yet, they honestly, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, I think I was talking to Logan this week, I appreciate the He is Wonderful song. We don't get four-syllable words like omnipotent in our hymnody very much, and we need to, I like that. Um, but how many songs are there about the four horsemen of the apocalypse? I, troublesome times are here, maybe, but that one doesn't even come close. But no, instead, the four horsemen show up in movies, they show up in literature, they show up in science fiction, they show up you know, on TV shows, and they are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, conquest, war, famine, and death, and yet they're always taken out of their revelation background and we never really know what they're there for. What are they doing there? And what's with them being part of the first four seals that the Lamb breaks? And why are these four writers acting on behalf of God? Or are they? First of all, the, the, the phrase. Now, you've heard that phrase, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And with the exception of old school football, what you usually think of is these are the four harbingers, the four precursors to some great disaster of the apocalypse, that they show up, one, two, three, four, and the next thing that's going to happen is the end of all times. And so often in our dramas, often in our plays and our stories, our heroes have to stop these four characters. And if they can stop them, then the apocalypse is not going to happen now keep in mind, I've told you now for two weeks the meaning of the word apocalypse. To call them the four riders or the four horsemen of the apocalypse just means they are the four riders who show up in the apocalypse, who show up in the revealing, the book of Revelation. It's not the four riders before the disaster. It's the four horsemen bef that show up in Revelation chapter 6. That's what it means. It's what it's often meant. That's what it meant at the beginning. These four come forward, and if they're not the precursors to a great disaster, then what are they? Well, they appear at the calling, the summoning of the four cherubim. And let me tell you, as impressive as these guys are, often more impressive in our artwork, the four cherubim, they wouldn't stand a chance against those four, okay? I mean, that's clear from the beginning. And in that context of the one who's seated on the throne, you have a royal voice, you have a royal authority. And his agents, his top agents, those four cherubim, have authority over these riders. These riders come forward, but notice the language. They were given, they were given permission. They appear in order to symbolize that conquest, war, famine, death, those are realities. 
Those are realities that we understand in our world. Those are the realities that John's church, his his church that he loved very much, when he was on Patmos and saw this, he knew that his people understood the realities. The history of his people, they knew conquering armies centuries after centuries. And when a conquering army would come and overthrow the people, when they would stir up the politics of a land, overthrow rulers. What was to follow? War. What follows war? Famine. By the way, that odd statement about three quarts of barley for a day's wages and all that, what he's saying is that's the revelation equivalent to talking about gas prices. Okay? And I'm kind of joking, but at the same time, you and I always hear news about gas prices, and why do we hear that? Because it's always doom and gloom, unless they go down, and that doesn't seem to last very long. But we're always worried that something like that is going to disturb the economy so much that we're going to be paying more. But in ancient times and in the majority of the world, we're, we're a bit sheltered, folks, okay? just need to say that here in our country. In a majority of the world, when these things happen, people starve, people die. Serious things happen to the economy. War leads to famine, which then leads to death. Why are these four showing up in the scroll that's in God's hand? How on earth do they become, how in heaven do they become God's will? Here's the message. Their presence is the divine way of acknowledging that when these things happen, they do not represent any sign that God is no longer in charge. They are there to establish a reality that we know, that John knew, that the hearers of John time knew, that people in the world know today that these things exist, and yet, Because it fits in under God's will, or because it fits in under His sovereignty, just because these things happen do not mean that God has lost His supreme rule. You go to the other seals and the other pictures. Now, i got to tread lightly on something, but I can't avoid it. When I was preparing these notes for this week, and reading through this, and you get to the fifth seal... The fifth seal is the word of the martyrs. And they say, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And this raises a question through this fifth seal, through the voice of these martyrs. Martyrs are those who die for standing firm for God's word. These who are slain ask God, How long is this going to continue until there's justice? I was thinking of ways, how can I talk to you about the sort of tragedies that happen that we might know, and then the shootings in Charleston, South Carolina happened this week. Now, you would think that I would be ridiculous, and you would be right, and I would be incredibly, and I would be incredibly insane and arrogant if I said, well, you see, that happened, so I might have a perfect illustration to share with you. That is not why that happened. Now, you get that. I get that, but, but how, how are we doing the same thing sometimes? 
when we are trying to make the statement that these things happen and God is, is playing dice and says this one lives and this one doesn't. All I'm saying is Revelation, the fifth seal, tells us we need to walk into this with a lot of humility. Let's be cautious here. Not because this is hard to understand, but let's be careful and respectful because we should never presume to know so much and stride carelessly into conclusions that God would never support. Here's what I want to say to you. To say that things like war, death, conquest, murders, injustice, to say that these things do not contradict God's supreme rule, that is not the same thing as saying that God wants these things to happen. Those are two different statements. That God allows it or that God wants it. That God is supreme is one thing. To say that He wants it is another thing. That's why the passive voice is appropriate in this language. I think it's also wise for us to point out that God doesn't necessarily have every single detail planned out like some sort of changing script. The the statement that, that Logan read to us said that what is immutable, that means what's unchangeable, is God's desire and God's intent to finalize all things in justice and righteousness. The fact that an atom spins in a certain direction or some quantum event happens over here and then over here on this side uh, some bad misfortune falls over here and that somehow is God's unchangeable script and he can't act that message is nowhere in the Bible and it's not in Revelation we can debate all of this and there's 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 time for this later we can be very philosophical about it but at the end of our conversation two things will remain true about Charlton, South Carolina. Number one, a wicked man defied God's law not to kill. Number two, there are grieving families, grieving church, a grieving community, a grieving nation, people who did not deserve death. They only wanted to worship God. Those things are true. Now, if you'll allow, and we can step from Revelation to the word of the Lamb, we might find some help on this from John, uh, I'm sorry, from Luke chapter 13. Jesus is asked a question. He's asked a question in Luke chapter 13 about the Galileans who were worshiping and Pilate executed them while they were in worship. Mixed their blood with the blood of their sacrifices. And the people want to know from Jesus, were those people destined for that? Was God angered at them? Was He mad at them? Did He cause their death? Jesus responds with another current event, news of the day, and He says, well, what about the people who died when the tower in Siloam collapsed? Were they any more righteous or were they any more wicked than the others who died? And the word of Jesus... The one who is the lamb that is worthy was, unless we all repent, we're all going to perish. Jesus puts it into that perspective. He's not talking about the moment of perishing, but he's talking about the ultimate fate of those who will not repent. He says focus on that. Now, just another little added word here. By the way, what Jesus is saying is misfortune and tragedy does not mean that God wants certain people to die. 
it does not mean that God wants certain things to happen, people. We often have in our mentality, and it comes from our history, from our culture, the idea that misfortune means that, that, that God needs to slap us around through some indirect way and is trying to, to wake us up. I don't know how God does that. I don't know if God does that. But I can tell you this. What we need to be doing is not stumbling into these things so carelessly as to make those claims. When somebody says, well, maybe this bad thing happened to you because God's trying to teach you something. I think God has brilliant ways of teaching people. He brought us the definitive revelation through his son. Hebrews says that. And there was a great revelation of what God is doing through the vision that John saw. If God needs me to break my leg to teach me a lesson, then you're saying that that somehow is better than these other lessons? The lesson has been given. And sometimes when somebody says to me, maybe God's trying to teach you something, sometimes I want to say, well, maybe God is teaching you to quit saying stuff like that. Because you didn't come in here with your prophet badge, and you don't get to say that. All I'm saying is, and I don't know, you know, many of us have learned great lessons from things happening to us. I have. I have had things happen to me. And through God's grace and through God's spirit, I have recovered from those things, learned from those things, and grown from those things. But all I'm saying is that when these things happen, Jesus is teaching us to focus on what matters. And Job teaches us to just kind of be careful and be humble Job might even say to some people, shut your mouth, okay? Because Job says that about himself. Job asked the questions better than anyone has in history about why these things happen and how can God be sovereign? How can he have supreme rule if these things happen? And finally, God does answer him, but he doesn't answer him with all the details that Job wants to know. But Job comes away from it at the end of Job 42, and he says, I'm convinced, God, you can do anything and everything. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. You asked, who is this muddying the water, ignorantly confusing the issue, second-guessing my purposes? I admit, says Job, I was the one. I babbled on about things far beyond me, made small talk about wonders way over my head. I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, Job, this is the wisdom that Job has come to understand. That what is immutable, what's unchanging, is God's purposes to make all things just and right. It doesn't mean that every bad thing that happens is because God wants that to happen. How do you know that? Well, because of the fifth seal after the riders come out and they cause destruction and they cause starvation and death and it's allowed it's permitted you have those who go to the altar of sanctuary and they ask the question they don't say god why but they say god how long how long is this going to be the case how long are we going to have to endure this And let me say this, again, to balance all these things, because along with humility, we also need balance. On the one hand, we don't want to be so arrogant, we don't want to be so self-assured that we think we know everything that God is doing as if we have the blueprint of all time and space. 
But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that we have to be doubtful. That doesn't mean that we have to just keep our mouths shut and just kind of duck our heads down and say, don't anybody upset God. Look at these witnesses. Look at these martyrs. They go straight to the altar of God. They're, they're, they're pleading. They're asking for sanctuary. And they're saying, when are we going to get that justice? When? When will you avenge our blood? They haven't turned away from God. They've gone right up to him. And they're grabbing at his ankles. They're saying, God, how long? When the sixth seal is open, that is not, and by the way, all of that description of everything just coming loose, you know, all of the land and sea and the skies and mountain coming apart, that's not God throwing thunderbolts at earth as if he's Zeus on Mount Olympus. That's God stepping out of the throne and walking on to earth. One of the messages is that when God intervenes like that, he's going to shake things. It's going to upset our ways of doing things. It's going to shatter our status quo. So when God shows up, the message is not a revelation as to when God will act. He just tells the martyrs, sit back, wait. I've got this covered, but he doesn't give them, you know, he doesn't say 30 minutes from now. No revelation as to how. I mean, you don't see what God is doing. You just see the effect of it. But this is the message and assurance. He will act. That you can be sure of that's what's immutable that's what's unchanging that God will step in and when he does though here's the question okay so I hear that God is going to step in this power that is unstoppable will bring justice a wave that will eradicate evil and and, and injustice and brokenness but if that happens how are we going to withstand it How are we going to endure it? And that's where you pick up in Revelation chapter 7. That's why there's a pause between the sixth seal and the seventh. And we'll get to the seventh later on in the future. Because when the seventh opens, it opens up more of God's God's plans. God's activity, rather, in this world. But there's 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 a pause. You've got angels holding back. That power. Why? Because God first has to protect his faithful ones. These are those, and and John sees these 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 martyrs. He says, These are those who have who have come from the great tribulation. And by the way, these are the words of one of those twenty-four elders who are praising God. And John has to ask somebody, What's going on here? Who's this? Who are the ones in these robes? What's going on? He says, The elder says to John, these are those who come from the great tribulation and they've washed their robes, scrubbed them clean in the blood of the Lamb. That's why they're standing before God's throne. They serve Him day and night in His temple. The one on the throne will pitch His tent there for them. He'll put up His tent. He'll give them shelter. I want you to hold on to that. That's why that's in gold type. No more hunger. Wait, one of the writers was famine. Uh Uh-huh. No more hunger. No more thirst. No more scorching heat. One of the writers is death. Uh Uh-huh. 
The Lamb on the throne will shepherd them. He will lead them to spring waters of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eye. Now notice, God sets up shelter. He puts his tent up for them. How does he do that? What does that look like? Where do you see God sheltering his people? Well, I want you to remember that phrase. Your your translations will say different things. God will put up a shelter for them. Some of you will have in your Bibles, it'll say, God dwells with them, right? God dwells with them. That word in, in, in 7... 15 is the same word in John 1.14. Same author, the gospel writer, the one who saw the revelation. That when the word became flesh, he came and he dwelled among us. It's that same word. He showed up here and he set up camp with us. He moved into the neighborhood. When, the, when everything was coming apart, when things were unjust, unrighteous, when, when there was conquest, war, famine, and death in this world, as there always have been, God doesn't back out. God doesn't pack his station wagon and go. He shows up. He moves into the neighborhood. He moves next door. He comes close to us. He throws his lot in with us. I'm with you. That same word then. This is how the one on the throne shelters his people. This is how they stand. This is how they are taken care of because the one on the throne is the lamb who was worthy, the lamb who was slain, and he's one of us. He's with us. He's with God, but he's also with us. We have the right one. We have the righteous one on our side. The Lamb is worthy to represent and act for the sovereign God because He has cast His lot with the faithful. He has cast His lot with the people that God created and loves. He's joined us. He's there with us in the struggle. He's right there beside us in the midst of those things that happen. The word we need to say to one another is, it may not be obvious, We may not see it. And we can say, how long? Just like the martyrs, how long? Jesus is in our neighborhood with us. He's he's cast his lot with us. He's set up his camp right here with us. He is alongside us. And we may be waiting. We'd like to see that. We'd like to know that. That's fine. You take that to him. You say that to him. And he's right there with us getting his hands dirty. He's not out up on some high mountain throwing out punishments and misfortunes like some pagan god. No, he's not an armchair general who's just shouting orders at everybody. He's in the thick of it. He's in the battle with us. He has been there. He is there. He will be there. So what's his strategy and all that? Well, we're going to have to come to that in the weeks ahead. But right now, can we just say, And by the way, it is not wrong for any of us to be feeling like we want to say to God, God, how long until you set things right? This is why one of the words of Scripture is Maranatha, which means come soon, Lord Jesus. We're ready. Are you ready? Are we ready? What more? Jesus said, unless you repent, you'll all perish. He's saying, get ready. I'm there with you. But God is waiting. And yet God is also, 
He's cast his lot with us. And one of the words we need to remind each other of frequently, we do it in our worship, we do it in our singing, we do it in the communion. He's with us. Now, he has cast his lot with us. My question is, who of you will stand and cast your lot with him? When the Lord appears, that protection comes from dwelling in the camp of the one who's moved into our neighborhood, of the one who is worthy. While we sing this song, we're going to comfort one another, encourage one another. We set up a time for our elders, our shepherds, to encourage one another. And if there's any encouragement we can give you this morning, or if you want to cast your lot with the Lamb, the one who is worthy, you can do that. Let's stand. Let's sing.